Good morning, church. Great to see you. Welcome. I'm Greg Paris. I'm the senior pastor here. Welcome to Union Chapel today. We're so glad you've uh, chosen to join us. God bless you. We uh, are going to start this series on the Old Testament next Sunday. This is Sandy Richter that you've just heard on the video. Sandy is a very good friend of mine. She is a world-class Old Testament scholar. She is excellent as she unpacks the Old Testament for us. And it's, it's so important for us to understand the Bible. Let me tell you why. We live in a culture now that is described as post-Christian. And we can probably all concur that many, many people, the majority of people in our culture now, are no longer really adhering to Judeo-Christian values and ethics, lifestyles, behaviors. And as a result of that, we are challenged. There's an emerging generation Millennials, younger generations that are now emerging in our, in our culture who have real suspicion and skepticism, cynicism toward the institutions that have been traditional in our culture, like government and schools and even the church. And so the question is asked then, how do we respond? How do we react? How then should we live as the people of faith in a time like this? There are two things that I just want to mention. This is all free of charge. This is before the sermon. The one thing is that we must double down on the things that do not change. One thing that does not change is the abiding word of God. It is foundation and fundamental to our faith. And so the doctrines that have been handed down to us through God's word are foundational to the perpetuation of the Christian faith. And I'll remind you, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we have the assurance that God is going to maintain his church and perpetuate his church, bring honor to himself through the church. And the best way for us to perpetuate that is through an understanding of God's words, his will and his ways. Now, the Old Testament study that I'm I'm promoting right now is a reminder that, that God started this faith journey with three generations, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what we learn from history is that nothing really changes in culture or takes root in culture until it's perpetuated for three successive generations. And so the question for Christians today is, what do we want Christians to look like and behave like in three generations? Our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, our great-great-grandchildren from now. And the best way to predict and to anticipate how Christians will be living out their faith three generations from now is to be rooted in the word of God. It's doubling down on the foundations that do not change and cannot be shaken. And so an understanding of the word of God and teaching the scriptures to our children is essential to the responsibility we have in the church today. The second thing is the development of our character. Think about this. Ask the question this way. What, how do you want Christians three generations from now to be living. And whatever that picture is for you, what you want to do is try to become that person right now at the level of your character. Think about it. You don't really pass on what you know. You don't reproduce what you know. You pass on, you reproduce who you are. And the people in the next generation will behave pretty much just like our generation has behaved. And so character matters. Character is our ultimate influence. And when you think about it this way, character really is the only thing you have control over. You 
and I choose to be the kind of person we want to be. Our choices, our actions, our reactions determine what kind of person we're going to be and whether we're going to live a God-honoring life in the character of Christ or not. So these two things, the truth of God's word must be learned and taught to others and the character of Christ must be formed in our lives. These are the things that will perpetuate from generation to generation. These are the things we want to pass on. So back to the Bible study. It's really important that you take advantage of the opportunities to learn God's word. And Dr. Richter is excellent. This is a 12-week series. It begins next Sunday. We're going to offer it two different hours, 10 o'clock and 11.15. So you, maybe you, you need to adjust and come a little earlier to take in the Bible study and then worship if you're 11.15er. And that's great. It's free of charge. All you have to do is show up. Uh, it, it will build on itself, but you don't have to... Be there the first week and be there every week. Whenever you can be there, you come. And here's the last challenge. If you're 50 years old or older, your inclination will be, that sounds like an interesting thing, I think I'll do it. Because your, your generation and culture is inclined to these sorts of things. If you're younger, your inclination is to think, you know, that's kind of an old time. I don't just sit and watch this video, listen to this old woman talk about the Old Testament. Doesn't seem very interesting to me. Listen, wake up. Wake up. You need to know the Bible. You need to learn the scriptures so you can pass it on to your children and your children after that. And so be encouraged to uh, take advantage of this opportunity. I couldn't recommend it. High. If I wasn't preaching here on 11, at 1115, I, pro I, I promise you, I'd be over there listening to Dr. Richter. Her, this is based on a book she wrote called The Epic of Eden. I've read the book. It's great. She's She's brilliant. She's really smart, and so you're going to learn a lot from her. So I hope you'll take advantage of that opportunity. Okay, that's it. Today's reference today is from Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. And this is a story that many of you will find familiar. Jesus healing a paralytic that is presented to him by four friends who lower him through the roof. Remember the story? And so we're going to learn a lot about healing today, not just healing physically, but the healing that God offers to us uh, in our total person, body, mind, and spirit. And in this case, Jesus healed this guy not only top to bottom physically, but inside and out spiritually and emotionally. And so we can learn a lot about the subject. So today's text, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Our custom is to stand as we hear God's word. So as you're able, would you please? A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home and they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. 
I believe them. That was quite a spectacle, right? Yeah. Thanks for standing. You may be seated. Thanks so much. A little girl's being tucked in by her father one night. She said, Daddy, what is your favorite Bible story? And he said, well, you know the, the story we read tonight at dinner about the four friends who lowered their paralyzed friend into Jesus. That's one of my favorites. And he said, it kind of reminds me of our great uncle Hans and his wife Enid. The little girl said, please tell me that story. And he said, well, Hans and Enid were in Europe and they fled to the United States during World War II so he could continue his teaching in the seminary. And when they first arrived, it was difficult. They didn't know English. But after they acquired the language, he became one of the favorite teachers in the seminary. And people loved to watch Hans and his wife Enid as they walked across the campus. They would always hold hands when they sat down to eat lunches together. They would always sit close together. And people were inspired by their love for each other. And then the dad said to his little daughter, and one day, Aunt Enid, she died. She died suddenly, and Hans was heartbroken. And he began to lose his hope. And so some of his friends, beginning with the seminary president and a few other friends, they would come to Hans's house, and they would pray with him. And Hans said, I don't think I can pray. I don't even think I believe in God anymore. And so his friends said to Hans, well, we will pray for you, and we will make your confession for you, and we will have hope for you. And they did this day after day, and it reached into months until finally one morning when they arrived at Hans's house, Hans smiled at them and said, you don't have to pray for me any longer. He said, the dark night of the soul has passed, and so you're a, you can pray with me. And the little girl looked at her dad and said, yeah. He said, instead of being lowered into Jesus' presence with ropes, Hans's friend, Uncle Hans's friend, brought Uncle Hans into Jesus' presence through prayer. And the dad said, yeah, you got it. You know, it's interesting. There are many, many Christian people who want to be forgiven. They want to say that they believe in God and they want to claim that they're spiritual people. And at the same time, they put their arm up against any kind of association with Christian people or a local church where they can find encouragement and accountability. And it's a curious phenomenon in our culture today. And I just want to submit to you that people who sub suggest that they can go it alone and they can be self-sufficient and they don't need any help and I, I've got it all together and I've figured it out and I don't believe exactly the way everybody else does, but my faith is the faith and it's, it's real to me so it must be true. And so people establish these kind of behaviors and these patterns. And I've, I'm fully convinced that folks don't do well in the Christian journey alone because God's not wired us to be alone. He's wired us to have friends and to do it together. And I, I suspect that one day God will, God will answer to people when they stand before him, you know, why, why was it that you thought you were so special that you didn't need to hang out with my people? And that's going to be a hard question to answer. And so what we learn from this story is the importance of friends and the value of having these connections for when we find ourselves in circumstances, seasons of life that aren't manageable and we can't be self-reliant, we can't figure it out, this is when the other's support becomes a huge benefit. I just want to remind you that in the local church and in meaningful relationships in the body of Christ, you can have your needs met as long as you are connected. 
And it's just like any other relationship you have in your life. It's just like anything else. The more you put into it, the more you will receive from it. And so I just want to encourage you with that, with that thought as we begin. You know, a verse in the Old Testament that might be a great umbrella over this whole story is Psalm 103, verses 3 and 4. I'll put that on the screen for you. Look, look at these words. It's beautiful, beautiful literature. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit so that your strength is renewed like the eagles. Isn't that, isn't that cool? Isn't that great? So this promise of God's healing grace at the point of our need is offered to us in this story. Some of you uh, remember now that Jesus is uh, midway, maybe the last third of his public ministry. He's got a reputation and crowds are following him wherever he goes. And so in this case, when he's in the region of Capernaum, people hear about his presence and so the crowd begins to build. They know that he's a miracle worker, he's got something to say and people are anxious to receive a touch from God and so they crowd into this house and it's, and it's uh, filled with expectation. Can you imagine? Filled with, with anticipation. The, the level of people's faith maybe is going up. You know, Jesus is here and something's gonna happen. People are pressing pressing to hear every word he says and people hanging out of the windows because of the crowd inside and people hanging into the windows because of the crowd outside. This is a packed out place and they're just expecting something to happen. Some of you know the term uh, St. Elmo's Fire. St. Elmo's Fire, have you heard of that? This is, uh, this is, this is when a buildup of electricity happens and it indicates that that lightning is imminent. So alpine hikers, for example, they may be near the top of a mountain and because of the atmosphere's charged with electricity, their hair will start to stand up and sometimes their metal, the metal frame on their backpacks begin to glow and have this neon bluish color glow that begins to happen. Uh, the ancient mariners, when they're in their sailing ships, they had this occur to them in the middle of the ocean at the top of their masts. This eerie blue iridescent glow begins to build like this. It means that a lightning strike is imminent. St. Elmo's fire. Now, in this case, people were, expecting, were anticipating St. Elmo's fire, except it wasn't a strike, a bolt of, of lightning. This is a strike of the power and presence of God, his healing grace. And people are just anticipating what is about to happen. So Jesus finds himself in this crowded house, and look what he does first. The Bible says that he was preaching the word to them, preaching the word to them. Now, this gives us a model of the right kind of foundation for all of Christian ministry. The foundation that Jesus models for us is his determination to preach and teach the word of God. This is the Son of God preaching the word of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God to interpret the word of God for the people of God. And he's preaching the word to them. Now, preaching and teaching the Bible isn't the only thing we do in the church, of course, but it's the foundation of everything we do because when we understand God's word, we understand God's will and we understand God's ways. And so we understand how to live and what to believe. And it gives us the foundation and the motivation for all the other things that we do. And so Jesus is modeling for us this foundational principle of teaching, preaching the word of God. Did I mention we're starting a Bible study in the Old Testament? We're doing that next week. Did, did I mention that? I, 
I've been through four services. I can't remember everything I've said. So I hope that you'll, uh, you'll study the Bible. And so here we, have, here we have Jesus preaching the word. Now on your outline, there are four things that I want to give you that are all associated in the process of experiencing God's healing grace in your life that we learn from this story. And the first one is this. Friendship is critical. You need the word friendship. Friendship is critical. Now, this guy, this paralyzed man, he's living on a mat. His whole world consists of the square footage on this thatched mat. And when it says mat, the, the original Greek language there indicates that this is a, this is a vulgar mat. In other words, it's dirty, it's stinky, it probably smells of urine, it's a mess, it's, it's nasty. And so this guy must have good friends, because wherever this guy goes, he has to either be dragged by somebody or carried by his friends somewhere. And so in this case, they find out Jesus is coming, they say, we got to take Bob down there and let him experience Jesus, something good could happen. And so these four friends grab up this paralyzed man and start hauling him down to the, where the crowd is gathering. These are good friends. Now they get there, and of course, this is before, before handicap access was popular. And so there's no, there's no handicap parking. There's no sticker or tag for the mat, you know, handicap. There's no ramp up to the door. There's no special seating in the house for people with special needs. And so they've got to try to figure it out. And some, someone comes up with the idea, probably under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, hey, let's go through the roof. And so they wheel him around the back and maybe find a staircase, gets up near the, the, uh, the edge of the roof. And now, you know, the dead weight, four guys, they, we know they have ropes. Maybe they lash the guy to his own mat so that when they turn him perpendicular to get him up on the roof, you know, he doesn't slide off. But, you know, can you hear them grunting and, you know, chirping at each other? I thought you said you had that in. I, I can't. But. So they're just grunting and straining, and they get him up on, on the roof. And then the one guy, he's brought a chainsaw. He fires this thing up, and he starts cutting this hole through the roof. It's a mat-sized hole in the roof. Now, inside, obviously, they know something's going on, and, and now light bursts through the roof where they've cut the hole. Jesus probably now has stopped. Everyone's just stopped and watching. And now, you know, one of the friends, his head peers through the hole, and he looks down, and, he, and then they hear him say, it's a perfect spot. Jesus is right below us. So they tie the ropes on each of the corners, and then they give the final instructions to, to the guy on the mat, and one of them says, hang on, dude. I mean, that's... So, and they lower him down. They lower him down. Now, it's interesting that, that friendship is critical, and the second thing that I want you to know is that faith is a factor. Faith is a factor. Now, there's the faith of these friends. Yeah, they have faith. But you also have to have some trust from the paralytic. Think about it. Put, if you can, imagine yourself being in the paralytic's place. I mean, they're going to lower him down through the roof. So not only does his friends have to have faith, but the paralytic has to have trust in his friends. You sure you got me? Yeah, we got you. Well, have you ever done this before? Well, no, but it'll be fine. Just hang on. 
This basic trust, think about this, the basic trust or mistrust is one of the first emotional lessons we learn in life. Watch how it happens. Most of us had good parents. Some of us didn't. But parents universally will take a small child, and this is what we do. Take a small child when they're, when they're old enough to, you know, to hold themselves up. We'll toss them in the air. Just toss them. And they get a thrill out of that, and it usually makes them giggle, and, and, and it's kind of fun. It's kind of a fun activity. You, you toss them, and you catch them. When our boys were being raised, I took this to the next level. In fact, we could, have, we could have joined the circus. We had a whole routine when they were just squirts. And I would take them outside. I would throw them as high as I could throw them. Because you can do it inside. The ceilings are too low. I would literally launch these guys. I don't know how high I threw those guys. 10 or 12 feet probably. More. <laughs> I could really throw. I could throw an infant back in the day. <laughs> Now, here's the key. Here's the key. You got to catch them. You have to catch them. If you throw them, you got to catch them. Otherwise, that's not good. See if you so, always catch them. But watch what's happening. What you're building into a child under those circumstances is that someone can be trusted. I can actually be in free fall in my life, and I can trust that person to catch me. And so it's one of the first emotional lessons that we learn. And it comes naturally when you have good parents or guardians when you're growing up. But you know, some folks don't have good parents and don't have good protectors. And so, and so what happens is that, that bridge, that emotional bridge of trust never gets established well in some people's lives. And, and so for those of us who had good parents, when Jesus comes along and says, all right, now I want you to trust me, with your whole life. The bridge is already in place emotionally so that we can, it's, you know, we can take the steps, we can connect the dots, and we say, okay, I'm, I, I've learned how to trust, so I'm gonna trust God with my whole life. And, and it's easier, relatively easier, than a person who hasn't had the bridge of trust established. And so when God comes along and says, I want you to trust me now with your whole life, some people go, listen, I don't trust anybody under any circumstances. So it's hard to trust you. And so here's, here's why friendship and faith and trust is so important. Because your relationship with certain people who don't have as much emotional trust as they need is critically important. Because in your faithfulness and your reliability and your trustworthiness as a friend in their lives will actually help them establish the bridge. So that when God calls upon them to trust him, they'll say, okay, okay, well, I have a friend that I can trust. I have a pastor I can trust. And so maybe I can trust God. And so the way that we do friendships is very important. Being a real friend, an authentic friend, a trusting friend, that matters in everybody's life and is especially important in folks who need emotional trust. And so friendships can actually be redemptive they can be almost sacramental. They can be a means of grace in a person's life. We, we celebrate sacraments in the church, the two that we celebrate, sacred acts, water baptism, and also the Lord's Supper, communion. And so those two sacraments, those sacred acts, we call a means of grace because they actually mediate our relationship with God. So when we receive communion, we sense his presence and we experience his grace at the point of our need. And so we, 
we, it helps our relationship with God. Same with water baptism, that just the symbolic cleansing that God has washed away my sins. It helps all of us to get closer to God, to experience these sacraments. And real good friendships can also be sacramental in that they mediate the grace of God so that a person that you know and have friendship with right now may be very close to God but can't take the last step until they have finally completed the bridge of trust based on your reliability in, in your relationship with them. So hang on to those friendships. They're very important. Because St. Elmo's fire, they may be close. The power of God is imminent. There's about to be a breakthrough. And so friendship is critical. Faith is a factor. Here's the third thing. Write this down. Number three. Forgiveness is essential. Forgiveness is essential. Now, everyone saw the man's shriveled limbs. They lower him down before Jesus. Everybody can see this guy's physical need. He's, he's paralyzed and he's atrophied. We don't know how many years he's been in this paralyzed condition. Uh, we're not told that by Mark, the author of this gospel. But we can imagine that he has symptoms of paralysis, which includes atrophy, and he's shriveled up. And so Jesus looks at him, and this is the first thing Jesus says to him. My son, your sins are forgiven. My son, your sins are forgiven. Now you can see the four friends. Their faces are over the top of the hole. They're looking down, and they go, his sins are forgiven. Come on, man. We need a fifth, you know, the, the Gus Mackers coming up, we need a fifth guy for the team. We don't care if his sins are forgiven or not. We just need a guy who can jump. <laughs> but notice Jesus is actually exercising discernment with this guy because he actually perceives by the gifts of the Holy Spirit the core need of this man. And when Jesus saw this man, he saw a man in need, first of a father, because he calls him my son, and then a person in need of forgiveness of his sins. Your sins, plural, are forgiven. My son, your sins are forgiven. Now let me just say a word about this. We live in a culture right now that more and more can be described as a fatherless culture. There, there are lots of reasons why men are not living up to their God-given place and role in, in society. There's a whole list of reasons for that, none of which, none of which qualify as an excuse for a man not to be the man that God wants him to be. A result of this, a consequence of this, is that more and more, we have children who are being raised without a father or a father figure. Thus, a fatherless culture. Let me just say this as plainly as I can. Any culture that is fatherless is doomed to fail. We completely and totally, in our culture today, underestimate the role and importance of men. You may think that that's some kind of chauvinistic comment or I feel threatened somehow as a man in our culture. BS. 
what I'm talking to you about is what God has called men to do and the presence that they are called to take up that solidifies and identifies a person at the deepest level of their sense of personhood and of who God has made them to be. Men and fathers in particular are essential to the well-being of a person when they're being raised. Jesus recognized this boy on the mat needed a father. So he said, son. Now, now men, let me just call you up. Call you up. Men, step up, will you? Step up. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what age category you're in. It doesn't matter your state. It doesn't matter how many times you've dropped the ball, kicked it around in your life. Beginning today, step up. Stand up, step up, step forward. Because you have influence. You have influence over people immediately in your family, immediately in your place of work. And you have influence beyond that that you're not even aware of. Because there are so many people in our culture today without fathers or a father figure, at some point they're going to be looking to you. If you show some degree of faithfulness and courage as a person of faith, people are going to look at you and find hope and significance and even a model for what it looks like to be a real man. Stand up and step forward. Be the man God's called you to be. And then Jesus forgives the guy's sins because Jesus knows that this guy's real need is to be forgiven of the toxic accumulation of the sins in his life. Ever been there? Toxic accumulation? Have you ever thought about just how liberating it is to know that your sins are forgiven? Has anyone ever said it to you out loud? I'll say it to you right now. I'll pronounce absolution for you. You ready? Your sins are forgiven. If you'll believe that and receive it, it will set you free. Your sins are forgiven. It's the truth. It's absolutely true. Your sins, all of them, every one, are forgiven. How good is that? How great is that? How wonderful is that? Isn't that wonderful? So that's just, just the best thing ever. Here's a homework assignment. This will take boldness. Next time you have company at your house, a friend or whatever, when they come into your house and in the right moment, just look at them and, and ask them the question, do you know your sins are forgiven? Do you know your sins are forgiven? Just see where that leads. There's a lot of power in it. You've just experienced the power of it. St. Elmo's fire. Bam. I'm forgiven. It's good news. The man who led me to Christ, my spiritual father and mentor in, in my faith, George Wicks, uh, was, a, was an evangelist. I was never with him when he didn't share Jesus with literally everyone he ever met. And anytime I was with him, and I was with him quite a lot in the early years of my Christian journey, I would just, I would just get quiet and I would just watch him and listen and learn from him. And when he was near the end of his life, I made his pastor call me when, when he knew that George was near the end. 
So I, I wanted to talk to George one more time. So I went to the hospital. This was in Lafayette, Indiana. I got in a car, drove across the state, and I got to the hospital, and there was George and his wife who was holding vigil. George was dying of bone cancer, and he was just a shriveled up little guy, you know, in his late 70s, and he was under the sheets. And he, was, he would be dead in three days. He would be with Jesus in three days. He was really sick. So I got there, and we just started reminiscing, and I was, I was always thrilled to be with him. But I always watched him around other people. And in the middle of our conversation, one of the volunteers in the hospital, a, a middle-aged woman who was a candy striper, she actually had the red and white striped dress on, and they called them candy stripers back in the day, or maybe still do. And she came in, and she was so beautiful and so cheerful and so so gracious, and she came in, and she was going to change out George's pitcher of water and give him some fresh ice water. Okay, great. So she came in, and there was another person in the room, so I just watched George. And she came in, grabbed the pitcher off his tray, and turned to walk into the restroom to swap out the water, and George said to her, you are a Christian, aren't you? And she looked back in her cheerful tone and she said, oh yeah, she put her hand up like this, I'm a Catholic. And she walked into the restroom for the water deal. And then I thought to myself, don't come out of that restroom, honey. I wouldn't, because it's St. Elmo's fire. It's St. Elmo's fire. She, I mean, she's going to glow blue. St. The strike of God's power is imminent. I'd seen this a hundred times. I just sat there. I just thought, if she comes out, lightning's going to strike. <laughs> it did. She came out. She walked over, put the, the, the pitcher down on the tray, and George's hand came up out from under the sheet like this. And he, he just reached over and took her by the hand. I mean, this is a guy, he's going to be dead in hours. That's harmless, right? You can't, he can't get me. He can't hurt me. <laughs> he's safe. Saying <laughs> hmm. almost fire. She, 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 had, she was had by the hand, and George looked up at her and, and, and said very simply the question that I've been rehearsing. And he said, and I quote, You do know Jesus died for your sins. Saying almost fire. And the power of God hits this woman. No, this is not hyperbole. I mean, whop, like that. And immediately her countenance changes, her brow furrowed, her head dropped down like this, and she was contemplating at the, at the core of her person the question, you do know Jesus died for your sins. And after a few moments, she finally raised up her face and she looked George right in the eyes and she said in a tone that would indicate that she believes what she is about to say and will never, ever think of it in the same way again. And she looked at him and she said, yes, I know Jesus died for my sins. <laughs> She came skipping in, but she walked out very slowly because fire had touched her. So when Jesus says to this guy, son, your sins are forgiven. Wow. 
It's a big deal. Big deal. Point number four. Friction is inevitable. How many of you knew it was going to begin with the letter F? See, you're just, you're perceptive. You're good. Friction is inevitable. Now, here's what, here's what I mean. The Jewish religious leaders in the room, when Jesus pronounces the man's forgiveness, they take offense because no one can forgive sins except God. This is blasphemous. This is wrong. Who does he think he is? Now, Jesus, for the second time, is receiving a word of knowledge. This is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, a word of knowledge is simply the ability to know something from God that he drops into your mind that you wouldn't have access to otherwise. And so a word of knowledge comes into, and Jesus has first discerned that the core need of this man paralyzed is for his sins to be forgiven. Not his body healed, but his soul to be cleansed. And now he's discerning what these religious guys are thinking, and he says to them, why do you guys think this way? Why, why are you behaving this way? They haven't said anything, but he discerns it through a word of knowledge. And so Jesus then asks them a question, which is it easier to say? Just between us religious guys, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or you paralyzed man, get up, pick up your mat, and go home? Which is easier to say? One of them finally says, well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because that can't be verified. I mean, who can see that? No one knows for sure if God's forgiven. Only God alone knows if the guy's sins are forgiven, so there's no outward indication of that. So it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Jesus said, okay. You say it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, but in order to demonstrate to you religious people that I have the power and authority to forgive sins, watch this. Hey, dude, get up, pick up your mat, and get out of here and go home. And the guy gets up. He got up, picked up his mat. He goes home. There's more stuff starting to fall from the roof because the friends are going, wow. They're starting to dance around on the roof. He's headed home. Let's get, and they're scurrying off the roof. You can hear them grunting and falling off the roof. And this guy's walking through the crowd, and everybody's amazed, really. They're amazed. Go figure. It would be amazing. Note the kind of ministry Jesus offers to this man. He doesn't pray a prayer. He doesn't say, oh, God in heaven, if it be thy will, please touch my pitiful poor friend here. I don't know his name. Is it Bob? And just help him because he's pitiful and he's on this stinky mat. And boy, it really stinks. And please help him to be healed. That is not Jesus' prayer. He makes a declaration. He makes a pronouncement demonstrating to all these religious folks that he has power and authority to do anything he wants, include forgive sins. And off the man goes. I love, uh, I love what Charles Spurgeon wrote about this moment. I put this on the screen. This, Charles Spurgeon is a great preacher of the gospel from another generation. He said, I think I see him. He sets one foot down to the, God's glory. He plants the other to the same note. He walks to God's glory. He carries his bed to God's glory. He moves his whole body to the glory of God. He speaks. He shouts. He sings. He leaps to the glory of God. Oh, yeah, he's happy. And the boys are happy. Their basketball team is full awesome. The guy was tall. It's a good day. It's a good day. 
Why were the religious people upset? Why are religious people ever upset? You can find out if you've become religious, and by the way, you don't want to be religious. Mm. You don't want to be religious. One way you can decide if you've become religious, and everybody who, who follows Jesus, hangs around a church and that sort of thing, has the temptation to become religious. Here's what religion does. Religion recognizes the way I experienced God at one point in my life. And I have become comfortable with the way I experienced God in that season of my life. And so going forward, I expect to experience God in the same way that I experienced him originally for the rest of my life. And I get comfortable with the status quo and the nature of my relationship with God. So religious people get stuck in their relationship with God, having never moved on or moved forward from the original experience. And this happens all the time in everyone's life. There's a temptation to do this because we like it the way we like it and we want it the way we want it. And the older we get, the more, the more this becomes a difficult challenge because we get settled and we like things the way we like them. And you can become really religious. And this is why many people who are Christian people and they're good people and they're godly, they, you know, they love God and these are people who know Jesus, get stuck in their faith and their churches get stuck. Did you know that more than 50% of all of the churches in America, Protestant churches in America, have not won one person to Jesus in the last several years? There's a reason for that. It's because people become religious and so they're, they're, they're more inclined to maintain the status quo, however that's defined, than they are interested in helping some person who's needy. And not only do they tend to get comfortable with the status quo, religious people also then embrace some kind of pseudo-power in order to maintain control of the religious environment. And this is why churches get stuck where they are. They're usually 100 people or less. 75% of all the churches in America, Protestant churches, are 75 people or less. The reason that they get small and stay small is because there's a handful of people, maybe just one or just a handful, who are in control of the place, and they won't let things change, and they won't let things move, and people don't get reached because religion takes over. It's nasty. Now, these aren't bad people. I'm, please don't hear me say that. These are folks who just got stuck and they've become religion, religious and, and so they go around and they, and they actually get sour and they get mean and they act like their underwear is on too tight and you know they get all puckered up and it's pitiful. You don't want to do that. You want to be free. You want to be loose. You want to, you want to be able to smile. I've never used that illustration quite like that before. <laughs> it worked, though. You know what I was talking about. Yeah, I am unrestrained. It's good. Could we pause now and just ask for God's healing grace? Can we do that? Would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes. Let's think it through just for a moment. Think with me while you're prayerful. Remember, friendship is critical. 
Remember, most people come to Christ because of the invitation of a friend or a relative. Did you know that? Most people come because of an invitation. So here's my question to you. When's the last time you invited an unchurched friend or a work associate to worship with you? And, and are you willing to be as creative and persistent as the four friends who carried their paralytic? Yeah. Friendship is critical. And then, remember, faith is a factor. And it doesn't have to be the faith of the sick person for someone to act in faith. Jesus, the Bible says, saw their faith. So faith was an action. Faith is a factor. Here's the third thing in the sequence of healing grace. Forgiveness is essential. I wonder, I wonder what healing energy could be released into your life or into the church if we would only forgive and release one another from old hurts and IOUs. Forgiveness is essential. And then friction. Friction is inevitable because there, there are some good religious folks who are always more concerned about keeping the rules and upholding the traditions than in seeing people actually set free. So what might God do today if you opened your heart to receive his forgiveness and his healing and actually prayed for a new and deeper work of the Holy Spirit in your life? What would happen? Well, St. Elmo's fire. The touch of God is imminent. The touch of God is imminent. Receive his grace. Receive his healing touch today in your body, in your mind, in your spirit, in your emotions. Be healed in Jesus' name to his glory. Amen.